Our scripture lesson this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. For this epiphany season, we are following, not exactly, but very closely, the gospel lessons in the lectionary. And John's gospel jumps in amidst some of Mark's gospel, marking Mark's message and our overall theme. But from John's gospel, and I've moved just a little bit from the suggested reading, but still in chapter 1, it seemed appropriate, and I hope you'll find it that way as well. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You'll notice as we go through this, we're using, or I'm using, one of the older translations in the sermon, Behold the Lamb of God. In this passage I've just read, it reads, Here is the Lamb of God. But to go along with Bonnie's beautiful solo and the hymns that have been chosen for this day, Behold, it's a good word. It's a good biblical word. We don't use it a lot anymore. It means look, listen, pay attention. And now, have you ever thought about the different titles for Jesus Christ that are found in the scriptures? There are several that are given to him by different persons and other times, names by which he referred to himself. Lord, Son of God, the Christ. Can you think of other titles bestowed on him by other folks? What did he call himself? Sometimes the son of man. At other times he said, I'm the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the alpha and the omega. One day he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
It's who others say that he is. Now, in the gospel lesson for this morning, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and John bestowed another descriptive title on Jesus. Here is, behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, it it sounds like a simple phrase, and in a way it is, but it's also a very complex phrase. There are many layers of meaning to that title, Lamb of God, and I want us to talk about some of those and the way those traditions are intertwined just a little time this morning so that we might be better informed or maybe we just hadn't thought about it in a while. What did John the Baptist mean when Jesus walked by and John indicated, here is the Lamb of God. It may well have been that the Baptist was thinking of the Passover Lamb. The gospel according to St. John is explicit and dating the death of Jesus on the afternoon of the preparation day, the day before Passover, the day when the sacrificial animals were slaughtered. The synoptic or the similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, date the death of Jesus on the Passover day itself, not the day before. So in addition to this, though, the chronology of the Gospel of John is built around three Passover appearances. In the other Gospels, they sort of build toward a crescendo, toward the Passover and the death in Jerusalem. But in John's Gospel, there are three Passover references here where John refers to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Some impressive signs here in John chapter 2, Jesus cleansing the temple. And then in chapter 6, the gift of the bread of life. And then in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These are all Passover stories. And so John's gospel has a different presentation than the others. This gospel shares with Paul an interpretation of Christ as our Passover. I think it might be helpful at this point to review for just a moment the actual events of the Passover, not the whole story, but just a brief review or an overview might be a better word from the book of Exodus in the 12th chapter. Knowledge of the Passover and what that was all about is crucial to understanding what John meant when he pointed at Jesus and said, the Lamb of God. And the Old and New Testaments both factor into all that's going on here. The children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. God had sent several plagues on the land as an inducement to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, to set God's people free. But every time the Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he responded and refused to give up his slaves. So God said to Moses, the acknowledged leader of the children of Israel, the Hebrews, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. God was going to have the angel of death visit the land. It's a scary title, isn't it? Angel of death. And the firstborn in every Egyptian family, from Pharaoh on down, even among the cattle, the critters on the farm, everyone, the firstborn, would be destroyed. But the angel would not harm any of God's people if they followed God's instructions and did exactly what God said to do when this great and terrible night came upon them. God's instructions were as follows. 
Every household among the Hebrews was to kill and prepare and eat a lamb on this particular evening. Some of the blood of the lamb was to be put on the lentils on the doorpost of every house. And the children of Israel were to have their bags packed, their suitcases by the door. They were to be ready to go that night. And when God said go, they they picked up and they left. And God said, the blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall fall upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So at midnight, the story goes, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And there was great grief and mourning and wailing across the land. And Pharaoh got up and he called for Moses and said to him, rise up, go forth among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. And in describing this night of Passover, the book of Exodus says, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching to the people for all time, the people of Israel throughout their generations. And if you've ever been part of a Seder service, if you've ever observed the Passover or seen that done, you know how powerful it is, how people even to this day still observe that, that night, that great and terrible night. The blood of the Lamb delivered them from destruction. And it may be that John the Baptist was saying when he pointed out Jesus walking by, there is the one, the one true sacrifice who can deliver you from death, death in this world, death in the life to come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John might have had the Passover in mind when he made that proclamation But he might have also been thinking about the lambs that were slain in the temple every day, a daily ritual in the temple. John the Baptist, remember, was the son of Zechariah, and Zechariah was a priest. So John would have been familiar with all the rituals and all the actions that happened in the temple and the sacrifices. Exodus 29 talks about two lambs, one to be slain in the morning and one in the evening on the altar of the temple. And they would be representative of the grace of God, the power of God to remove our sin. Every morning and every evening, as long as the temple stood, this sacrifice was made. And even when the people were starving in war and in siege and times were most difficult, they still observed this tradition, still observed this ritual. It was that important to them that they did not set it aside And it happened until about A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire. It might be that John is saying, in the temple a lamb is offered every day and every night for the sins of the people. But in this Jesus is the only true sacrifice that delivers us from the sin and brokenness in our lives. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe John was thinking about what some of the earlier prophets had said and and remembering that. Maybe this story of the prophet Nathan who came to confront King David was, was on the mind of John when he pointed out Jesus. And you remember that story and the parable that Nathan told to King David. King David, a man after God's own heart, in one particular incident seemed to violate several or most of the 
Ten Commandments in one incident. He had fallen for a young woman, a married woman named Bathsheba, and had become involved with her and had even sent her husband to the front line of the battle so he would be killed and he could have Bathsheba as his own. The prophet Nathan approached King David. Always risky business, isn't it, to approach the ruler in charge, especially when you have something difficult to say. He approached King David, and, and he had a story to tell. He said there was a, a rich, two men, and one was very rich and the other was very poor. And the rich man had many herds and flocks, had all that you could imagine, everything at his fingertips. All he had to do was ask. But when the rich man was approached by a traveler who was hungry, did he kill one of his many lambs? No, no, no. He went to his poor neighbor's house and he took the one lamb was a family pet. They had all fallen for this lamb like it was a little puppy dog or, or a kitten and he took that one lamb and destroyed that lamb, the lamb who was like a daughter to that family. And when David heard this story, he got hot under the collar. He got so angry and he said, who is this as the Lord lives? The one who has done this deserves to die. And it's like the prophet Nathan held up a mirror in front of the king and said, it's you, king. You're the man. Maybe John had these words in mind from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Who knows exactly what was going through the mind of John the Baptist, that character, that New Testament prophet, the one with the locust and the wild honey. But maybe he was thinking about these words from Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a shoot out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mortals, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and as one from whom mortals hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the brokenness of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Fred Craddock died a few years ago. I think probably one of the greatest preachers I ever have been able to hear. Great storyteller. Tells about a legend among the Jews, the legend of the Lama Thoe. It's a strange legend, a strange story. The legend says that in every community, in every place, God has somebody who represents God, who loves and cares for the people, who carries the burden and the sin of the people. And according to this legend, once in a community in Poland, the Jews were all persecuted. And all the men folk were either killed or exiled and left the women and children. No men. Well, he said there was one poor excuse for a man he was an adult 
mentally challenged, about 30 years old, but a child. You would see him squatted around on the ground and staring into space, but he was the only man in the community. And one day the women, so upset with God and so upset with life as it had become for them, saw this hulk of a boy as a poor excuse for a man, and they were so incensed and they were so angry that they began to pick up stones and to throw them at this man. And he starts running and running and running. And he's out of shape. And he is morbidly obese and he's awkward and he stumbles against the tree and he tries to get his breath. And one of the women throws a stone that strikes him in the temple and he falls at the root of the tree. And all the women gather around and they notice he's dead. And one of them said he had no beauty or comeliness that we should desire him. And another one said he was despised and rejected. He was one from whom we hid our face. And another one said he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. And they felt the poison of their own doubt and hatred and fury oozing out of their body. And one of them said, he's a llama though. He was about 30 years old, they said. Does anything come to mind? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there is another picture of a lamb that John the Baptist would have been familiar with. And folk in that day would have, though it may seem very unusual to us. Between the Old and New Testaments, there were the days of the great struggles of the Maccabees. In those days, the lamb, and especially the horned lamb, was the symbol of a great conqueror. Judas Maccabeus is described as our Samuel and David and Solomon as a lamb, a horned lamb of a powerful figure. The lamb, strange as it may sound, represented a conquering champion of God. It's hard to think of a lamb in those terms, isn't it? Hard for me to think about that. Can you imagine a professional football team being called their name the Lambs? It just doesn't fit, does it? Lamb conjures up images of weakness and, and gentleness, two characteristics that you don't see very often on the gridiron. Maybe though John was thinking in terms of conquering majesty and power, when he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 29 times. The writer of the book of Revelation uses the expression Lamb of God. First Peter, the epistle, refers to the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And there are other references to lambs throughout the scripture. Now, whether John was referring to one or two or more of these, we, we can't know for sure. There are elements in all of these references that are applicable to Jesus, some more directly than others. And the one thing we know is that John was convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who had come into the world to take away the sin and the brokenness and the pain of the world. Karl Barth, he was a German professor. Some folks say the predominant theologian of the 20th century, though others might 
argue that point. But on one of his visits to this country, sometime during the World War II era, someone asked Karl Barth what he would say if he met Adolf Hitler. And Barth's reply was, I would say to Hitler, Jesus Christ died for your sins. Elizabeth Actemeyer, New Testament scholar, was commenting on Bart's answer. And she said, I suspect Bart's answer, Bart's answer was his way of saying to the world in the context of a brief conversation that finally the church has only one message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is the sin in our life that makes us miserable, that leads us into despair, that keeps us from the wholeness that God desires for us, that keeps us away from God and sometimes away from other folks who need us the most. And I want us to think of that question in terms of our individual hearts and lives, but also on a more corporate level in terms of God's church. What is the brokenness that keeps us apart from God sometimes? And in terms of our nation, the pain and the struggle and the difficulties we are encountering, it's not just a personal thing, though it it starts there, it doesn't stop there. What is the sin? What is the brokenness? What are the difficulties that separate us from God and from one another in this sometimes dark and painful world? Whatever it is, for us, for the church, for this nation, whatever it is, there is but one answer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.